listening to Treasuring Scripture, a podcast of the weekly teaching ministry of Lebanon Baptist Church, Roswell, Georgia. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at LebanonBaptist.org. It won't be long till that day has arrived, and I trust you will be looking to the heavens. You will live your life differently from what you hear this morning as we have sung, as we have rejoiced in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This morning, before I begin, uh, I can throw a little uh, uh, plug in for my summer of service activity. We're going to be doing it this week. I'll be in the office this week, but then on Wednesday night, if any of you are free, uh, uh, the last few years we've been doing a cleanup around our lake, and if you'd be willing to give a couple of hours to join me in service to my neighborhood, uh, just contact the office. We'll get you information about that. And uh, don't want to go into too much. It's going to be, this is a very bittersweet day uh, for me. Uh, Many of you know I'll be uh, away for a a number of weeks. I will not be here. There'll be some weeks I'll be in town, but I will not uh, be at church for the next uh, few months and trust uh, God will use this time. I'm praying that God will continue to do great and mighty things. That God will continue to grow our church. And let me tell you, you are going to be blessed. God has assembled such a wonderful uh, staff. The guys I serve with, God has incredibly gifted them. And I know that they are going to be a huge blessing to you as they have been to me. And uh, uh, we love you and, uh, and trust uh God will greatly use you and grow you over the next couple of months. Today, we have come to the final message in our series, Under the Sun. And let me invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We have been in this book for 12 weeks, and today we are at chapter 12. I am looking forward to when I return, taking smaller chunks of scripture. Many of you know our practice here is to make our way through various books of the Bible and focusing in on expository preaching. But as I've made my way through this series, at times I've had to take pretty large chunks. And this morning, uh, I'm glad that I only have six verses to cover and uh, trust as we look at these verses that God will impact your life as a result of what you hear. Let me read from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. It says this, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This indeed is the word of the Lord. Would you pray and ask the Lord's help today with me? Father, Lord, today as we allow this text to sit upon us, I ask that you would intercede today on our behalf. Father, help us to see eternal truth. And Lord, help us to be people that do not live simply temporal lives. But Father, that we would allow these words in many ways to act as you have given them. That they would awaken us from our lethargy. And that we would be people that live under the sun for the glory of God. Father, use this message. Use these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last 12 weeks, I have encouraged you that you would learn how to live it up in a broken down world. It isn't hard for you to realize that our world, earth, is broken. It's messed up. Just drive by a cemetery and you know death has entered the picture. 
But this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, was given by God so that you and I would know how we ought to live in a broken down world. And I've suggested to you that God wants you to live it up. And by up, I mean two things. One, that you would live your life with your eyes above the sun. That you would realize that there is someone who oversees it all and he ultimately is working it out to its final end. And your job is to set your affection on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You and I have such a tendency to get so uh, tunnel-minded with our lives in this earth. And I'll tell you, it can get pretty discouraging. And that's why you need to be people who set your eyes on things above. And remember that there is a God who's in charge and who's appointing everything. But not simply up in reference to being Godward, but by up I also mean this, that you would embrace this life with joy and that you would, I mean, the world tells you to party it up. But let me tell you, if you're a believer and you get your eyes focused on heaven and you realize what God has already done for you here on earth, let me tell you, you can live this life with joy and with vigor. You can walk out of the room this morning and wherever you go to lunch or the way you live today, you can be joyful because the Bible says you are to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And though no matter what hand you are dealt with, because a lot of you have been dealt very bad hands and you have gone through many rough things this side of heaven. But if you have Christ and you realize what he has done for you and what he's prepared for you, whatever you may face as The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, nothing is to be compared with the joy that shall be revealed in you. And so you can face today with joy and you can face it with the mentality of a carpe diem. I'm going to seize the day. I'm going to live it for God. And over the course of this mess, these series of messages, we've had an hourglass here to remind you that our lives are short. In fact, is Emily Deton. Emily, come on up here. Emily is going to be our last one to flip the hourglass. We bought this at the beginning of the series to remind us that, you know what? The sands of our lives are sinking. And they're going quick. And it's that first turn of the hourglass. Your life right now. Thank you for doing that, Emily. Uh, It's that first turn of the hourglass that is absolutely essential for all eternity. You have to embrace this God. And you come to know this God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we have looked at how our lives are going very quick. In fact, our time today on May the 23rd, 2021, our lives under the sun here in Roswell will end under the sun at 836 and 25 seconds. That's sunset today. However, the afterglow, twilight, will ultimately go till 9.06 and 37 seconds. In fact, last night, it was around 9.08, I realized, hey, they were right. It's right around that particular time. You kind of know when the sun's going down. You don't know, none of us know, when our lives are going to end on that first turn of the hourglass. We are to prepare ourselves because our lives are but a vapor that appear for a little time and then vanisheth away. And so we need to think about our deaths and be ready for it. Mentioned a few weeks and a few weeks ago in staff meeting. Have you ever thought that as you sit at a dinner table or as you sit at lunch today after church, that one of you will see all the other ones pass away? In fact, there's somebody in this room today, if the Lord tarries, that will be the last one standing. If God allows this world to continue on and he tarries his coming, your death is coming, and so is mine. And we need to figure out, okay, since it's coming and there's an eternity coming, how am I to live? Well, the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes has searched out what's the point of my life here on earth. And you know what? Sometimes it's baffling. 
This past Christmas, uh, many times people do a gift exchanges. We did a gift exchange in our family, and I was one of those guys who wanted the gift that I put in the gift exchange. So when it was time for me to pick, guess what I did? I got my gift. You say, why did you want your gift? Well, it was something that was something I really wanted. It was a 365-day Farside calendar. Okay, many of you remember the far side and they had come out with them again and it was like, that's the gift that keeps on giving every day. Okay, and so this past week, there was one I pulled off that just nailed Ecclesiastes and the the little cartoon was this. There were two scientists at a chalkboard working together on this very elaborate equation. So half the chalkboard is this massive equation and then in the center of the chalkboard was an equal sign And then it all added up to zero. And the caption said this. No doubt about it, Ellington, we've mathematically expressed the purpose of the universe. How I love the thrill of scientific discovery. You know what, that's what our world so often, when it comes to trying to figure out this life, and it's interesting, I took one word out of that particular cartoon because in fact, In that particular cartoon, they took God's name in vain. And it was interesting, here in the midst of them talking about this, they say God's name, the one who oversees it all. Man has tried to figure out this broken world. And as Solomon has begun this book and ended this book, he has said it is transient. It's vanity. He uses the word vanity repeatedly through this book. As a result, as it's frustrating, human autonomy has become king. When man can't figure out what's right, they try to choose for themselves what's right. And we have become our own authorities. In our day and age, isn't it true? Everyone's their own authority we can identify as whatever we want to because it's our prerogative. We can take the life of that child in the womb. Why? Because we can do what we want. We can live in that sexual relationship with that boyfriend or girlfriend outside the marriage bonds because you know what? It's human autonomy. I can do what I want. Kind of the saying is no one can tell me what I can and can't do. And you know what this just shows what this world's like? Because of the fall, man wanted to be equal with God. And so what did God do? He gave them over to their own way. In the book of Romans chapter one, it talks about as man just lives for themselves, he gives them over. And really what we'll do is we'll ultimately destroy ourselves. The book of Ecclesiastes, as Solomon takes all his wisdom and brings it to bear like a magnifying glass on life under the sun, he opened up the book in chapter 1, verse 2, saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all frustratingly enigmatic. So he opens in chapter 1 with that, and then he ends the verse right before you come to our text, verse 8 of chapter 12, he ends the book like a parenthesis, vanity of vanity saith the preacher. He's like, all of this is frustratingly enigmatic. But then here in the last six verses, our text announces his conclusion. Thankfully, the preacher has shed light on this purpose Kind of, he's hinted at it all throughout the book. But today what he does is he shines the spotlight on your purpose and life under the sun. And today we're going to learn this particular truth. Since God has recorded the purpose of life under the sun, look no further and fear him. Let me say that again. Since God has recorded, and it's in this book, he's recorded the purpose of life under the sun Look no further and fear him. It's in these final six verses that the preacher or Solomon, or we've also called him Koheleth, lays out your purpose in life. And I want you to see these two main truths that support this. And it's first of all, he tells you initially that you need to treasure the words of this book. 
Let me say that again. You need to treasure what he's given. The words of the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'll include the whole Bible, these are words that you need to treasure and allow to sink deep into your life. The preacher, what he does now is he gives a synopsis of what he has endeavored to do from chapters 1 through 12. Look what he says in verse 9 of our text. He says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Now, it's interesting, here he begins to talk in the third person. He calls calls himself the preacher. Now, it's interesting, uh, my family sometimes, I think I may have mentioned this to you before, they kind of make fun of me because sometimes I refer to myself in the third person where I'm like, dad thinks we need to do this. And like, just say I, just say I. And uh, and so they've always made fun of me about that. I I was pleasantly encouraged when I heard that Winston Churchill often referred to himself as in the third person. But then one of the writers says, I think it was because of arrogancy. And I was like, no, nah! <laughs> hopefully I'm not. Why does, why does Solomon refer to himself in the third person? Now, some have suggested that maybe this is uh, an inspired editor at the beginning, in the beginning, kind of like Ezra was the editor of some of the, uh, of some of the books of the Bible. I don't believe that's the case. I believe what Solomon is doing is he's referring to himself in the third person in humility, in some ways distancing himself due to knowing ultimately who the source of these words were, as we're going to find out in just a moment. What he affirms is this. He says, yes, I am wise. In fact, we know that God gave him divine wisdom that he used practically in life. But what he says is this, the wisdom that God gave me, I did not hoard it, I taught it to you. He then shares the process that he went about amassing the words of Ecclesiastes. He uses three terms, did you catch them? He says, I weighed, weighing, studying, and arranging. What he meant by those was this, the words that are in the book of Ecclesiastes, he He tried and weighed them to see what's the best way of saying what I'm about to say. But not only that, he weighed his words, but he also studied them intently. Here was a man who put all of his mental capacities at work in recording the words of this book. But finally he says, I weighed them, I studied them, and then I arranged them. And the idea was this, he put them in their proper order. There have been times that as I've studied this particular book, I says, why is Solomon doing what he's doing? Because that's confusing, because he's moving around and such and such. What this tells me is this, it's not, it's not his problem. He did it purposefully. He was a lot wiser than me, and he put it in the right order that it's supposed to. It's me to continue to figure out and understand scriptures better to be able to understand what he's trying to do. But he says, this has been arranged very carefully, like a well-maintained garden. And the closer you get to it, you realize this was incredibly orderly. It's almost like taking a bumblebee. You look at a bumblebee, but if you get a microscope and you look at it really carefully, you realize, man, this guy is incredibly designed to do what he does in making honey. In the same way, when you look at this book, God, in some ways, used Solomon to arrange it very, very carefully. In fact, he refers to the words of this book by saying many proverbs. Notice he says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Now, just so you're aware, Solomon, I believe, wrote other books of the Bible. He wrote other sections of the Bible. In fact, he wrote probably numbers of the Proverbs. But when he refers to the Proverbs here, I believe he's specifically referring to the Proverbs that are in this book. And what he's saying is this, as I amass the words of chapters 1 through 12, I have done it with incredible care. Almost like a mom bandaging a child's wound. They do it carefully and properly out of love in the same way he says I did it carefully. And then over the next couple of verses... 
we learn how immense the treasure of these words are. And what I want you to do is I make our way through the next couple of verses. I want you to see six characteristics of the treasure of these words. Okay, here's the first. They are delightful words. Look what it says in verse 10. He says, the preacher sought to find words of what? Of delight. I believe that, first of all, refers initially to the overall beauty of the words of this book. Let me just point out three areas that were beautiful. He does three poems. There's a poem in chapter one where he talks about generations coming and generations going and the wind and all of this. And if you read it, it's just beautiful. You get to chapter three and you read how there's a time for every purpose under heaven. It's such a beautiful poem that many people read it at funerals when they need encouraging words. And then you get to the end and you have the poem of the the aging process that happens there at the beginning of chapter 12. It's absolutely beautifully designed. So when he says these words are delightful, I think inherently he's talking about the words themselves, but I think there's a dual meaning here. They're not only delightful to look at and to read, but also they can be words that can bring delight to your life. You know, the Bible says in other places, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb in reference to the word of God. I'll tell you one place that these words have been a, you could say marrow to my bones and just life-giving, has been those refrains where he stops you and says, Hey, yes, life is tough. Yeah, you're going to go through trials. Wicked people get into positions of leadership. Hard things happen. But let me tell you what I want you to do. Go and enjoy life. He does this in one of my favorite texts in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Let me read to you what he said there again. He says in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 7, Go, eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. For that is your portion in life and in the labor which you have labored to do. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge, or wisdom, and Sheol to which you are going. And you know what it's done for me? These words have been an an encouragement to me to, wherever I'm at in life, I need to embrace that day and enjoy it. Whatever God's placed on my plate, enjoy it. Give my life. I mean, if you're going on vacation this week, enjoy it. Yes, there's going to be rough times. It may rain two of the days. But you know what? Enjoy it and read a book. Enjoy the rainstorm. Take life, whatever lot you are given, and if you have Christ, you can enjoy it and embrace it and live it. So these words are delightful words, and I'll commend to you to memorize some of those refrains. They have become new foundations in my life. I'm glad I read them before my sabbatical, that I will enjoy and embrace each moment for him. But also this, They are not only delightful words, they are truthful words. Did you catch that at the end of verse 10? He says this, uh, once again, in chapter 12, verse 10, he says, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Solomon says that he uprightly wrote all of these words, and what they are is truth. In a moment, we're going to find out that they come from God himself, But Solomon is saying that the words that you read in this book, you can take to the bank and you can cash because they are reliable words. You know what? So often we enjoy delightful words when people encourage us and they tell us nice things. But I guarantee that a lot of you, you value pleasant words, but more than you value pleasant words is you'd rather people tell you the truth. If there's something wrong and something not right, you want them to tell you about it. And what Solomon says is this, the words that you read in this book, they are delightful and they'll bring joy to your heart, but they're also the truth. And you better rest your life on them. 
But not only that, he also compares the words of this book to two objects, goads and nails. Look what he says in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails. Now, for most of you, you know what a nail is, but you don't know what a goad is. I mentioned to you at the beginning of the sermon, or the beginning of the sermon series, that a goad was a long pole with a pointed end on it that if you were involved in agriculture, you were very familiar with it. Because what a goad would do is if you were plowing behind two oxen and those oxen decided to stop in the middle of their work, one way to get them going was to take your goad, that long pointy stick, and give a nice haul into their back end. And guess what? They wake, awaken from their lethargy. And what he says is, the words of this book, they are jostling words. That's the third thing. I use that term in a good way. These words are meant to awaken you from just continuing in your normal routine. You know, let's say a doctor comes to you and you're just going through life, starting to have headaches, and all of a sudden a doctor tells you, you know what? There's a mass in your brain. You hear those words and you know what? Your life has changed. They're jostling. Or they said, we noticed a spot on your liver. Or maybe it's just a financial plan or meeting with a couple in their mid-60s and saying, there's no way you can look at retirement. You're going to have to really change the way you're currently living. Those are jostling words. And he says, the book of Proverbs, I mean, the book of Ecclesiastes, if you really pay attention to them. They are delightful words. They are truthful words, but they also jostle you and try to get you out of living life the way you've always lived it. You got to wake up and allow these words not simply to be heard on Sunday, but to be lived on Monday and to be thought through all through your life. I remember, I mean, God can use his word in a lot of different ways. I remember, I think I'd mentioned this to you a number of weeks ago. I remember there was a little phrase when I was a high school student that someone quoted that said, a living dog is better than a dead lion in a message. And I remember it was those words that kind of just were my goad that said, Brian, are you going to live for yourself or are you going to live for God? What are you going to do? And I can't remember all that went, went on, but those jostled my life to start living more purposefully for Christ. That's what these words can do. They can disrupt you and help you change your path. But not simply that, they are also, he compares these words to nails. So they are stabilizing words. What, do, what did shepherds use nails for well to secure their tents when they were moving from place to place a nail stabilizes and grounds an object to where it needs to be and i'll tell you this if you begin to understand these words and to start to apply them to your life they will bring stability they will help give you perspective and they will help you organize your life properly going back to my high school years I can still remember it was a number of months after I had gotten right with the Lord and I really needed some encouragement that I read the whole book of Ecclesiastes and it was almost as if God allowed those words of the book of Ecclesiastes to once again stabilize and reorganize my life to what I should be living properly for. And that was for God under the sun. So these words can help adjust your life and organize your life. But why are they so powerful? Well, that's the next thing. They are also God's words. Notice what he says at the end of verse 11. He says, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. And then he says this little phrase, they are given by one shepherd. Who's that one shepherd? What is Solomon saying here? He just said, I wrote all these, I organized these. However, all the words that I've given you are coming from one shepherd. I submit to you that what he's expressing here is what we would call the doctrine of inspiration. Our Bible was written by men, but the Bible teaches that it was inspired of God. 
In fact, God moved so that the very men who wrote the words of this book, as they were using their own personalities and styles, he allowed them to record none other than what God intended to be written, his word. And so although we can say these are Solomon's or Kohalas words, they are really from the one shepherd. Who was that one shepherd? Listen to what Psalm 80 verse 1 says. It says this in Psalm 80 verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Who is that shepherd? It's none other than God. And in fact, in the New Testament, we find a little bit more of who this person is. When Jesus came to earth, what was his name also? Emmanuel, which means God with us. You ever thought that at one point in human history, the God of the universe, the infinite God, took on a human body and his name was God with us? And what did he refer to himself as at one point? I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. You know, these words are none other from God himself. In fact, in 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's, that's the Bible that you and I have. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon states right here that these words of Ecclesiastes, it's interesting, he opens up chapter 12 by calling God the creator, which he's over all, and then in the middle of this chapter, he calls God the one shepherd. He's the God who's near. The one who stands above and near. So these words are, in many ways, trustworthy, delightful, They're jostling, they're stabilizing, they're God's word. But the last thing I want you to see is this. These words that you have in Ecclesiastes are sufficient words. Now, listen to what it says in verse 12. Now, some of you, you're gonna like this verse. It says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much studiness is a weariness of the flesh. All of you who just finished school, okay, you just graduated or you're about to finish school, you've been wearied by the flesh. Although this is a great verse for saying amen to for students, really what's happening here is Koholeth is giving a warning. And it's to those who think that they will discover a different purpose in life. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, I'm not into this fearing God and keeping his commandments. I think life is about something else. I think it's about living for this or this, or there's no purpose in life. I'm like one of those two scientists in the far side calendar. Let me tell you, you can think that. But what Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived besides the God-man, Jesus Christ. He said, you can search and you can try to find it, but let me tell you, he's basically saying in effect, if you think there is something more, you're gonna be frustrated and lost. You are gonna weary yourself in the process. Ecclesiastes, this book, is sufficient to understand life under the sun properly. Now, That doesn't mean that more revelation was coming after Ecclesiastes. We know that was the case. Okay, God gave a lot more of the Old Testament and the entire New Testament after this was written. But what Ecclesiastes does when it presents what life is like under the sun, it is sufficient to help you. A while back, I I think I referenced that I had read R.C. Sproul's The Consequence of Ideas. This is a a book in which R.C. Sproul presents all the various philosophers of the ages and how they were trying to just give themselves to understanding the purpose of life in the universe and how many of them were just on dead-end streets. And one of, the, uh, one of the particular philosophers that was searching for life was a guy by the name of Nietzsche. Many of you are familiar with his teachings. He was known for the great phrase, great to him, but it just showed he was a fool, that God is dead. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He wrote a novel 
called nausea of a man trying to understand his own existence. And as he's trying to understand his existence, the result was this, the name of the book, nausea. I don't know about you, but that's the one thing I hate. I hate being (laughs) nauseous. And a life without God, you know what it's going to lead to? You won't understand life. In fact, Nietzsche spent the last 11 years of his life in an asylum. These are dead-end streets. You know, there are so many people that seek to just are searchers. I'm going to find my own way. I'm going to get, I'm going to just be a searcher. There's no absolutes. As I was studying for this, one of the commentators that I have referred to over the course of this series is Derek Kidner. And Derek Kidner referenced one of C.S. Lewis's great books, The Great Divorce. Some of you who may have read it, The Great Divorce is just a story in which he writes of a dream in which a group of of tourists are touring the outskirts of heaven, deciding if they want to investigate more and move more toward heaven. And as they're kind of exploring and investigating it, many of them just depart the tour. An artist leaves to preserve the reputation of his school of painting. A bitter cynic thinks heaven's simply a trick. A bully is offended that people he believes beneath him are there. A nagging wife is angry she'll not be allowed to dominate her husband there. But also he points out someone that he calls a lifelong searcher. They're referenced in it. And as this searcher who's just always just exploring, I'm going to find out my own reason, as he is interacted with, he's told by the trustworthy guide this. The guide says, I can promise you no scope for your talents, only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere of inquiry, for I will bring you to a land not of questions, but of answers, and you shall see the face of God. He responds, ah, but we must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there is no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind. Must it not? And of course, his wise counselor says, listen, once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when you had found them. He says, become that child again, even now. And he responds, oh, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. It's interesting, Derek Kidner comments, he says, no argument, no appeal will avail against this infinite elasticity. The encounter already fruitless ends with the gentle sophist remembering an appointment, making his apologies, and hurrying off to his discussion group in hell. And if you think you're going to find through your own inquiry the true meaning of life, besides what God has presented in his book, you will not find it. Those of you, no doubt, I mean, I think of our graduates who are headed off to higher education. You are going to get peddled philosophies and you are going to be thrown out and says, oh, there's no meaning for this, no meaning to this. And you can weary yourself trying to find the purpose of life. And let me tell you, we've had numbers who've come through here and we pray that God will open their eyes to the truth of the gospel and to realize that all of those places are dead in streets. What Ecclesiastes is telling you, you can go search all these other places, you will not find it. The wisest man that ever lived 
told you where it was. And so these words in the book of Ecclesiastes, you must treasure these words, memorize them, allow the truths to jostle you and secure you into the path of true life in a broken world. And so what Solomon does is he commends the words of this book. He ends with his now crowning conclusion. Look what he says in verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. And basically saying this, let me tell you the sum of it all. Let me give you the final word. This is the fireworks show, the grand finale. I'm about to give it to you. He says there's two commands. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's the truth. Treasure the words of this book. Know that they're teaching you the truth, but then fear God and keep his commandments. Those two commands sum up your purpose under the sun. I purpose, I mean, I I personally believe that that first command is the primary one and the other one flows from it. The idea is to fear God. In fact, it's listed first and it's also been announced throughout the book. Let me remind you of a few places where it happens. In in chapter 3, verse 14, it says this, God has done it so that people, what? Fear before him. Listen to what it says in chapter 5, verse 17. But God is the one you must fear. In chapter 7, verse 18, it says, for the one who fears God will come out of from both of them. And then finally in chapter 8, verse 13, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Know what your life was made for? Your life was to be lived in the fear of God. Now I've told you what a definition, my working definition of this, it's this. To fear God means to live in worshipful submission. Worshipful submission. You've come to know who God is and you've chosen to live your life accordingly. And you know what? It's not like chains come on. It's when you really truly understand who this God is and what you were created for, it's like the chains come off. I believe the second command to keep his commandments flow from the first. Those who truly fear God will be those who strive to keep his commandments. You say, Pastor Brian, how do I begin to fear God? Well, you gotta come to know him. And the only way you come to know him is through his revelation. And what was his final revelation? God, who in sundry times and in various ways spoke in times past through the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us through his son. If you are going to fear God, you have to know his son. And his son's name is Jesus. And when his disciples saw Jesus, they wanted to see the father. And Jesus says, have I not been with you so long? If you've seen me, you've seen what? You've seen the father. You have to come and begin a relationship with God through accepting his son. Solomon, who lived 900 years before Jesus, how did he do it? He was one who looked forward to the Redeemer. In fact, many people believe that he possibly wrote the book of Job. And in Job, Job says this, for I know that my Redeemer lives, which he knew that his Redeemer was already living Hundreds of years. Why? Because Jesus was pre-existent. He's eternal. I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at a latter day upon this earth. And though after my death, worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He looked forward. You and I, God has definitively declared himself through his son Jesus. And if you are going to spend eternity with him above the sun, you have to recognize him and fear him and submit your life to him. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. And then what happens once you come to fear this God and Jesus, what do you do? 
The natural result is now his spirit comes to live inside of you and your job is to follow his commands. That's why he tells you in the Great Commission, teach others to observe all the things that I've commanded you and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. In fact, he says, if you love me, you're gonna keep my commandments. God wants all of you, your whole purpose in life is to live life walking with Jesus keeping his commands, understanding he's coming back one day, embracing each moment with joy and vigor. And he gives really two final motivations. He says, why should you do this? Look what he says at the end of that that verse 13. He says, for this is the whole duty of man. Literally, this is what it's saying. This is man's all. This is a hard phrase to translate in the Hebrew language. Really, it's saying that this is man's existence. This is why you were created. This is the entirety of man, the sum of your existence. This is your duty. Lord Horatio Nelson, one of the great men who fought in the British Empire and the British Navy before they went to fight in Trafalgar, one of the most decisive battles in the early 1800s against the French, Lord Nelson told all of his men, his message was this, England expects every man to do his duty. Do what you're supposed to do. And for them, it was to give themselves their lives. And Lord Nelson did in that battle, gave his life for the sake of his country. You know what your duty is? Your duty is to live your purpose, and your purpose in life is to fear God and keep his commandments. That's why he designed you in the garden. He designed you to walk with him and to spread his glory through the whole earth. You were designed for that, just like a pen was designed to write, a knife was designed to cut, a car was designed to transport you from place to place. You as a human being were created to walk with God, to fear God, and to keep his commandments. And anything you do other than that, you are robbing your God. You are robbing him. And you are justly deserving of his wrath. And that's why he says at the end of the book, he gives a final reason. He says, judgment is coming. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, I want to remind you that Solomon is writing early in biblical revelation. He's in the early part of the Old Testament. And we have progressive revelation, and we realize that God continues to reveal more. What about this judgment? Because some of you could read this and say, am I going to get judged? Everyone will be judged. But the question is this. The difference is what you do with Jesus. Either he can be judged for your sin, and that's what he came for. He came to be the substitutionary death and resurrection for your sin. If you will receive him, he takes the judgment for you. Or you can choose to go to that judgment on your own and reject him. The Bible says in, Revel, uh, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, for those who've come to Christ, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, the Bible talks about some other judgment in reference to the judgment state of Christ, which we'll talk at other times in reference to, but let me tell you, your sin will be dealt with all of it in Christ if you choose to fear him, which results in, you know what, you live a life of keeping his commandments. So the question is this, we end with, what are you going to do with the words of this book? What are you going to do with them? Are you going to treasure them and obey them? Will you heed them? This morning we learned this truth, since God has recorded the purpose of life under the sun, look no further and fear him. Some of you may be in here today and you've been pushing against God. You don't want to live in submission to him. You want to be your own authority. There was a very wise scholar during the years following Jesus' death and resurrection 
who had been trained in many of the greatest schools of learning of his day. And when he heard of this Jesus Christ, he thought he had greater wisdom, and so what he sought to do was to snuff out any existence of these Jesus followers. And so he persecuted the church, even to faraway cities. But there was a day that God awakened him. And on his road to Damascus, this man who thought he could find his own wisdom runs into Jesus. And for him, it was bodily. He had appeared to him. And what did God, Jesus, tell him? He says, Saul, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Kick against the pricks? And what Solomon, I mean, what the Apostle Paul had been doing was God had been prodding him with the word and he had kept kicking against it. And finally, the man finally said, you know what? You're it. This is what my life's about. And guess what? His life totally changed. And let me tell you, there is nothing greater than to put God in his rightful spot. You will begin to see what life is all about Life under the sun, although it's broken, is lived to be in relationship with God, to walk with him, to keep his commandments. That is man's all. And I'll tell you, it's the greatest life you could live. And it brings you to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths of this book. Father, now would you take this book and allow it to, in many ways, sear our hearts, that we would be that we would be different from what we have heard in this text. And Father, would you allow this entire group of people to be those who fear you and keep your commandments? With your heads bowed and eyes closed, why don't you just take a moment? Some of you in this room may need to call on Jesus to become your savior today. Some of you may need to get right with Jesus. You'd say, man, I've gotten off track. And Father, I need to recommit my life to you. Whatever you may do, need to do right now, why don't you take some time in the quietness of this moment to talk to the Lord? You do that right now. Father, would you allow these delightful, truthful, jostling, stabilizing, sufficient, but most importantly, divine words to be those that dictate the way we live. Lord, help us to place our faith in your word rather than our own word. And Lord, help us to live our lives under the sun the way you designed it to be lived. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Treasuring Scripture. It's our desire that every Christian treasure God's Word in their heart. To follow our podcast, please hit the subscribe button. If you're interested in learning more about our church, please visit LebanonBaptist.org.